any honest observer of the world around us, anyone who follows the news, and I suspect that most of you do at one level or another, and reads about things like the political unrest going on right now in Thailand or the wars in Syria or the deadly typhoon in the Philippines and the struggle for aid in the aftermath, it doesn't take much to observe that the world is pretty broken. And, honestly, uh, it's not just the brokenness that we read about in distant lands, but as we look closer to home, in our own country, in our own city, and even in our own hearts, we experience quite regularly the brokenness of the world in our own lives through broken and botched relationships and unfulfilled dreams and seemingly unbreakable destructive habits that have creeped, crept into our lives and so on. And so the question is that we need to ask is, so what, what will fix all of this? What will make it better? And often in responding to a question like that, we turn to um, various solutions like social programs or better education, or diplomatic summits, or improving technology, and on and on. And none of these things obviously are bad at all. In fact, they're all quite good. They're important and helpful. But when we're honest and we look at the world around us, they they don't actually seem to make a lasting difference. It seems that whatever valiant efforts that we make, the world and our lives as well remain just as broken as they were before we implemented those efforts. So the question is, what, what will work? Long ago, long, long ago, the prophet Isaiah that we heard from tonight wrote of something that would come to pass in the latter days. He said, nations would stream to the mountain of the Lord, to the presence of God, and he would teach them and he would judge between them. And as a result, then Isaiah says that they'll do this in these famous words, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And what this is giving us a glimpse into is this ancient hope that the intervention of the God of Israel, and I should say an audacious hope as well from a small nation, that the intervention of their God would bring about one day the justice and peace and blessing among all peoples that we all deeply long for, that we all resonate with. And this is, this is the biblical hope. This is the Christian hope. And it's quite radical, actually. We hope for a day when suffering will actually come to an end. When the tears and the sorrows and the disappointments and the futility of our world will cease. When the wrongs, some of them quite personal and drastic in our lives, will be made right. And when the alienation that we all experience at one level or another between God and humankind is forever gone. When the self-centeredness is replaced fully by love in the human heart. And when peace shall pervade the world. And for us as Christians, and this is massively important, our hope for this day that we long for to come doesn't rest in ourselves at all. But it rests in the God who made the world and who made us. And so what we believe is that through the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus, God's son, God's new day of peace for which Isaiah was longing some 700 years before has in fact dawned. That evil has been decisively defeated and that the darkness has been vanquished. And yet in the midst of that proclamation, which is at the heart of the Christian good news, there are still shadows in our world, still dark places that are cold and, and wet and damp, in our current world. 
In other words, though the day has dawned decisively in the coming of Jesus and in his resurrection, we are effectively still waiting for the sun to rise fully to its noonday heat and height. And what we believe is that this day, this noonday time, will come when the return, with the return of Jesus, when all the world will be flooded by this power of resurrection and peace. So as Christians, then, our hope and our deepest hope in the midst of the broken world in which we find ourselves is not our own growth in holiness, important as that may be. It's not the development of programs to meet the needs of our neighbors, especially the most needy neighbors that we have, important and valuable as these programs are. Our hope for ourselves and for our neighbors and for our world is the return of God to earth. God coming among us. And that's why from the earliest days in the Christian church, the simplest cry of their heart was this, and we've sung it tonight, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Come and make the wrongs right. Come and fix what is broken in my life and in the world. Come into our world of injustice and death and establish your reign of peace and justice in life. Come and finish what you inaugurated in your death and resurrection. The liberation and the renewal of people and the reconciliation of all things. Come, Lord Jesus. This is the cry of the church. These are the last words in the Bible, the next to last verse in the book of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. So here's my first question to you tonight. Is this, is this the longing of your heart? Is, is this what you yearn for? Do you ever find these words, come, Lord Jesus, at the tip of your tongue? It's really easy for us. It's really, really easy for us to get bogged down. Sometimes in very good and laudable kinds of things. And sometimes in not so praiseworthy type of things. In chasing after the vanities of the world. But it's really easy in one way or another for us to get bogged down. Only to see three feet or five feet or one hour or five hours in front of us. And if this hope and this prayer, come Lord Jesus, seems distant and removed from you and from your spiritual life and experience tonight, if you're feeling spiritually bogged down, then I want you to be encouraged that it's Advent, that we've entered this new season. Because it's this season in Advent when this cry and this hope of the people of God is to be awakened and rekindled in our hearts. The cry and the hope that define us as the people of God. It's not that it's not true in other seasons, but it's that in this particular season, for these next four Sundays, we focus on these things and we encourage and rekindle these things in our hearts. So, beyond the renewal of hope, Advent forces upon us another set of questions. What are we to do in the meantime? What are we to do as we wait for the coming of Jesus? And how are we to wait for the return of our king to his world? What what is it that's supposed to mark us as we wait for this great hope to finally come to pass? And I want to suggest to you that Jesus' words in Matthew 24, as we've read tonight out of verses 36 through 51, address these questions in a way that's instructive and helpful for us. In the first section, Jesus builds off the idea, this is verses 36 through 44, He builds off the idea that no one knows when he's coming back except the Father. In order to exhort us 
to alertness and to readiness as the people of God. So here's what he says in verse 42. He says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is, your Lord is coming. And again in verse 44, therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Stay awake, be ready. Alertness and readiness. And then in verses 45 through 51, Jesus tells the story of the faithful and wise servant versus the wicked servant. And he does this to help us understand what this readiness entails for us as we wait for our coming king. That it entails doing what the master tells us to do. Blessed is the servant, verse 46, whom his master will find so doing when he comes. That is doing his will, doing what he set him out to do what he's commanded him to do and it's this doing of the will of the master and using what's been entrusted to us in accordance with the master's will that is Jesus's way of unpacking what it means to be ready and to be alert and this would be further demonstrated in the next chapter as you read on to the parable of the talents using what God has been given has given to you in his service so Jesus says we're to wait then in a state of readiness and alertness, which is an ongoing posture of doing the will of the Father. This is what it means to be children of the dawn, children of the day. And here's how Paul says it in Romans 13. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So as people of the day, people of the dawn, we are to walk in a manner that's consistent with the day that has begun in the resurrection of Jesus. And though it's not yet high noon, our lives are to reflect the, the brightness of the life of the light and the life of the new creation. The new creation people who are marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Being these kinds of people who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is what it means to wait patiently and to wait humbly and rightly. So let me make then a few observations in unpacking this a little bit more. The first thing to say is that the default seems to be a lack of alertness and a lack of readiness. It's really hard to stay awake. Uh, I had a friend who um, was an army ranger, and he told me that in going through the the ranger school, the, the rigorous training that rangers have to go through to be qualified to serve in that capacity, that the hardest segment of the training was when they were required to stay awake for 72 straight hours. That it was at this point in the training that most of the candidates dropped out. They couldn't stay awake. And we, do, we don't really have to wonder at all if these kinds of forces in a parallel way are at work in the spiritual world in which we find ourselves. Where it's easy to be lulled to sleep by various desires and by seeking comfort and security and significance in all kinds of things other than God himself. The flesh, as Paul says in Romans 13... The works of darkness, these things are alluring for us. They, 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 they pull us in. They're jockeying for our attention day after day. We all know this. We all feel this. We all experience this. But like Paul says in Romans 13, he says to cast these things off and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
which is this is the passage that informs the daily prayer for the season of Advent that we just prayed together a few minutes ago. Now, most of us know that to be ready for something, for anything, requires real preparation and discipline. Be that in the world of business, of academia, of agriculture, perhaps even of romantic relationships, of athletics, or as here, in the world of faithfully following and waiting for Jesus. Readiness and alertness require discipline and preparation. Without these these things, without discipline and preparation, we, we actually can't cast off the works of darkness and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And without discipline and preparation, we won't be ready and alert. So this begs the question for all of us then, an Advent question. What, what intentional steps are we taking in our lives to be in a state of readiness for the Lord's return? What intentional steps are you taking in your life to be in a state of readiness for the Lord's return? Or perhaps to ask it in a slightly different way, what steps are you taking in your life to ensure that you're a faithful steward of all that God has entrusted to you and using it in accordance with his will and not your own? Are we regularly engaging in in worship, in prayer, in hearing, and in studying the scriptures? Do we have real relationships with other Christians in our life? People who will know us and understand us and point out areas that we're blind to help keep us ready and alert. Of course, we can and we do fall asleep. We can and we do get sidetracked. We can and we do get caught up in various worldly ways of thinking and of living. And so as John says, he says, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you feel more asleep right now than ready and alert, then be encouraged in this Advent season to repent of your lack of readiness, of your sleepiness, to repent of your self-will and to receive the forgiveness that God freely offers and gives to those who truly do repent and trust in him. And then to taking those intentional steps for readiness and alertness in your life. Now, a second observation on what Jesus says here is that the point of not knowing the time of Jesus' return isn't so much so that Jesus can catch us off guard and cut us us up into pieces, as the master does to the servant. But it's to encourage our perpetual readiness. We're to be doing the will of the Father as a continual way of life, which is wisdom, and not simply when when we think it's advantageous in certain circumstances. I'm dating somebody who thinks Jesus is important, so it's advantageous for me in that situation to go to church and act like I care in those kinds of things. In other words, the the Christian life is not a life of opportunistic obedience. That is, obedience only when it feels good or when it lines up and furthers my own desires or wants. But this kind of following Jesus is about faithful devotion at all times and whatever the cost even, and perhaps especially when it's inconvenient. 
In light of this surprise element of Jesus' return, then, we should ask ourselves routinely, and perhaps this is an exercise that we can practice again during this Advent season, if Jesus came back right now, would I be glad that he found me the way that I am and with what I'm doing right now? Or would I be ashamed? Would I be embarrassed? Now, of course, there are aspects of all of us that would be ashamed and embarrassed. But would I be deeply ashamed? and embarrassed? Would I feel like I need to run into the darkness again? Would I have to make excuses? It seems to be that this is Jesus' point in emphasizing the fact that nobody knows when he's going to come back. Since we don't know when he's going to return, let us be ready for his return at every minute, at every moment. Which means to let every minute and moment of our lives, of every day, being the faithful and wise servant who is doing the will of the Father. That's the encouragement here. But thirdly, oh, let let me say actually as well that perpetual readiness doesn't also imply perfection. This is more about the entire trajectory of my life than it is about a particular minute detail or failing in my life. We'll all have moments of unreadiness, but the bigger and more important question is, are we on this narrow road of readiness, of walking after him? Is this the general course and trajectory and direction of our lives? One of repentance and faith, one of walking with him, one of yielding over to his will. Third and last, at the same time, we need to stress that in order to be faithful to this text, that our readiness is not a trivial or frivolous issue. These two sections from Matthew 24 that we're looking at tonight, combined with the three stories of Matthew 25, about the ten virgins, the talents, and the sheep, and the goats, to communicate to us unambiguously that something massively significant hangs in the balance here. That is that when Jesus returns, he returns to judge. And those who are not ready are cast away. Jesus' words, harsh as they may seem to our ears, are intended to encourage us as his disciples and all of us to a life of readiness in the light of his future coming. It's a serious and important call for all of us to hear in the Advent season. Are we ready? So finally then, in conclusion... This Advent season at Church of the Cross, let's remember together this brilliant and wonderful hope that we have as Christians and cry out, come Lord Jesus. And let's start here with remembering this great hope. But let's also move on to the act of repenting for our lack of readiness, for the areas where we are asleep, for the places of our lives that reflect more of the darkness from which we have been redeemed than the light to which we have been saved. And God will hear that repentance in our lives and renew us in him during this Advent season. And then let's remember the connection between these two things. That our hope and our readiness are genuinely connected. If our hope is dim or distant or foggy, we'll surely be rendered much more weak as we seek to stay awake and ready. Our hope in the glorious new heavens and new earth that Jesus is coming to bring is an important part of the fuel for our lives of readiness in the daily grind of this world, of doing the will of the Father at whatever cost. Once the athlete loses sight of the championship, the work in the weight room begins to feel a bit meaningless and then begins to taper off at some point. Likewise, if we lose the great hope of God's coming reign in peace as his people, 
then our daily readiness will ensure will surely be diminished over time. So let me close then with these words of Paul from Romans 15 and make this a prayer for us as we close and for this Advent season. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen.